0: What's up, kinfolk? It's R.J. Young. I am not on a step mill. Today on the show, I'm going to talk with best friend Katie Mullins about William Wayne Justice, who I will introduce you to in a minute in our 30 minutes to fix the world segment. But first, the R.J. Young Show podcast is presented by Get Money Management Institute. Always wanted to get your MBA. What's the holdup? If it's tuition fees, let me tell you the folks at the Get Money Management Institute have a deal for you. At the Get Money Management Institute, they've just slashed their entrance fee, their late fee, their slushy fee, and your fee fee by 50%. That's right. It's now officially affordable to get your MBA at the Get Money Management Institute. Secure your space in their MBA program at the Get Money Management Institute. It just takes one phone call to get this online degree that's not worth the effort to blow your nose with it. Mention RJ and receive an additional 20% off at the online campus e-bookstore. Secure your future with a GMMI MBA, or as they call it, a master badass diploma today. Some restrictions may apply absolutely positively. No refunds. Start the show. Woosa. But
1: the cream will rise to the top for oh, you. Yeah.
0: And I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down.
1: A lot of emotion here, a lot of temper. What is your name?
0: I told you it so. doesn't matter what your name is. Oh. Totally uncalled for. I am the one, don't your son don't need the gun to get respect up on the street. <laughs> Under the sun, the bass, the sun, we'll pop the clock to feed ourselves right, so and so I want y'all to know enemies, about enemy, Judge enemy. William like a... Wayne Justice. And by way of introduction, I'm going to read for you a little story that I have prepared for your listening enjoyment. Getting that, you know audio book voice going. What am I talking about? I got an audio book voice. I'm about to get at this, but I still need to, you know, warm up. (laughs) You know me, I got to clear the sinuses. Some of y'all be watching the channel know that I got to clear the sinuses and whatnot because I get stopped up. all right, Texas Justice by me, RJ Young. Daryl K. Royal scrapped his wishbone when Earl Campbell first took the field for the Texas Longhorns in favor of the Power I, a formation That all but screams out to the defense. We're going to hand the ball. To the tank in the back. And we dare you to hit him before he hits you. Tis the rare black man. Who can completely. Change the way a white man in charge. Chooses to perform. The business that makes him money. But Lord. When you see it. Everybody else sees it too. And we will write your story. Scribble your legend. Orate your epic. For you or a hero. In 1981, the Texas State Legislature did just that when it announced Earl Christian Campbell as an official State of Texas hero alongside Davy Crockett, Stephen F. Austin, and Sam Houston as three men who defended the damn Alamo in the stand for the national state of Texas and a football player from Tyler, Texas. Once Campbell ran over one of his own blockers, the fella had committed the sin of falling down in front of him. Royal was asked what he thought about that fella's misfortune. He said, Oh Earl doesn't believe in taking any prisoners. He was the first Longhorn to win the Heisman Memorial Trophy in 1977 and one half of the football field's namesake at Darrell K. Royal Texas Memorial Stadium. It is called Campbell Williams field after the two Heisman Trophy winners that would be Campbell and Ricky Williams but if not for Judge Wayne William Justice Campbell might not have played at UT as Asher Price has described in his essential biography on Campbell Earl Campbell yards after contact what's even more clear is he should not have been the first Campbell to play on the 40 acres by his own account quote If it hadn't been for the race problems, I would have been the third best and the twins would have been the fourth and fifth best athletes in the family. He said this in Michael Hurd's Thursday Night Lights, the story of black high school football in Texas. Continuing with the quote, Two of them were better than I, but they got caught up in the race thing and never got the chance. My two older brothers didn't get the same opportunity I got where they probably would have gone farther than I went as a Pro ball, as far as pro ball is concerned, excuse me. In quote, many black high school football players were overlooked until the late 1960s and into the early 1970s because they did not attend an integrated high school and because coaches at predominantly white institutions were too scared or outright forbidden to recruit them by boosters and administrators. As white coaches at PWIs were looking for the right black player to further or sometimes for the first time, integrate their college football programs with pristine backgrounds and academic resumes, they decided it was not in their best interest to risk upsetting fans, boosters, and bigoted alumni. This was true at Texas when Daryl K. Royal would have sought to recruit players the caliber of Campbell at all-black high schools. Regents at Texas explicitly forbade black UT athletes for any sport Until 1963. In 1976. Texas Monthly writer. Gary Cartwright. Observed. UT boosters were. Quote. That splendid assortment of dentists. And bankers. And contractors. And regents. Who hired Royal. In the first place. Then attached themselves. To the UT football program. Like ticks. On a bird dog. Those were. And still are. Your racist. Your true orange blood. Bigots. Who made it clear. That the first black Longhorn had better be two steps faster than Jesus and able to run through a brick wall, end quote. The same magazine called Justice the real governor of Texas, and he left an everlasting mark on the state and its flagship university football team. He did that in Campbell's native Tyler with rulings from the bench that forced East Texans to integrate when many white folks were held brent on segregation. And the real governor of Texas had a certain disdain for racists that he cultivated as a child. When a black boy wandered through his neighborhood looking for someone to play with, Little Justice was delighted to have a third to join him and his white friend. Little Justice didn't think much of his white friend's mama stepping out and calling him inside. Little Justice's white friend delivered his mama's ruling on their new black friend. After a while, Justice said, came back out and said that they couldn't play with N-words. This little old black kid, he just didn't know what to make out of this. I imagine it just crushed him. He just slunk on home. That angered me. And the judge, he held a grudge for damn near 80 years, and he pushed toward his calling. He was a federal judge. When the case that justice used to change history began with cheerleading, or more precisely cheerleaders, just how many and what color, though? In 1970, Tyler, Texas schools became the latest in a slog to desegregate public school systems. That meant Emmett Scott High, a school in nine all-black school districts in the Eastern District of Texas, would close, and all students attending and those following thereafter would bust to John Tyler. Being a cheerleader at John Tyler or anywhere in East Texas was and remains a big deal. When the folks performing the judge, excuse me, the judging, handed out ballots that detailed each cheerleader trying out by race and then required four white cheerleaders be picked for every two black ones, black students not only balked at that, but walked out. Tyler High administrators suspended 200 black students who did. About about two thirds of schools, black population smart to the civil rights movement. Those students brought suit against the Tyler Independent School District and the case landed on justice's desk. Not only did he rule in favor of the students and prevent them from being suspended, he ordered that two more cheerleaders be selected. One needed to be black and one needed to be white to accurately reflect racial population of the high school. Then he ordered the creation of a biracial committee tasked with, quote, discussing ways and means of achieving interracial harmony and understanding amongst students, teachers, and patrons and shall function as an advisory board to the school board. End quote. Justice ordered the committee to be made of eight black and eight white members, appointed members to two year terms and finally, but crucially, imbued it with power. The court shall give substantial weight to the findings and conclusions of of the biracial committee in resolving the dispute and in resolving further problems which might be brought to his attention regarding the operation of the Tyler school system. With the last line, the committee later took aim at John Tyler's crosstown rival Robert E. Lee High School. Lee's, (laughs) goodness me, Lee High's, whole presentation lay in the failing of the confederacy the band wore confederate uniforms the drill team coined the nickname rebelettes the football team stormed the field under a giant confederate flag and the band played the fight song dixie at a pep rally the morning before john tyler their game against john tyler in in november 1971 tongue tied thank you for listening to me this far that action forced another from the biracial committee. The committee advised Tyler ISD that the Confederate flag, the mascot, and Dixie had to go. All hell broke loose over the next month in town, but the Texas Education Agency decided not to play around. After the Tyler schools were under its direction and the TEA had been named in the lawsuit brought before justice, you know, well, That's when it gets twisted. Justice used his position in the court to hold the TEA to account for desegregating the whole of Texas, which meant investigating every threat to interracial harmony as designated by the biracial committee. For the TEA, the solution was simple. The TEA told the Tyler School Board to drop the Confederate imagery, or it would lose its accreditation and the $800,000 it received in funding from the state. These events, from his ruling, earned him a new title alongside federal judge, Antichrist of Smith County. He received death threats. Local hairstylists refused to do his wife's hair. His cousin penned a letter to the paper in Tyler expressing how ashamed he was to be related to justice. A full sixth of the Tyler population signed a petition that sought his impeachment. He raised the amount of insurance on his home, and he lost 50 pounds due to stress. In lieu of requesting bodyguards, he began practicing taekwondo in his 40s. All of this after graduating from the University of Texas, its law school, and serving four years in the Army in World War II. He told the New York Times it was a great way to take out his frustrations. He built up a lot of hostilities sitting on the bench all day. This is the man who prepared the way for Earl Campbell. He held fast to what is right, what is just, and made the U.S. Constitution upheld, or let me say that again, made certain the U.S. Constitution was upheld under his watch from the moment Lyndon Baines Johnson gave him his lifetime appointment to the Eastern District in 1968 until his death in 2009. And he did it without the knowledge that Campbell would become one of the greatest football players of all time, because most of us won't. When white folks ask what they can do for black folks in the U.S., he is one white person they can look to for an example of not just what to do, but what they must be willing to lose to achieve justice's racial harmony. If I rule the world, no fool, fix the world. Fix the world in thirty minutes.
1: I have been falling for thirty minutes. Check the mic and make sure it sounds
0: right, boys. Katie Mullins joins the show. She is going to fix the world in this segment and elsewhere because, uh, well, she's now got a reminder in her phone guaranteed to send her into flight or fight. And it was one of those things that just made my day, Katie.
1: Yeah. So about half an hour ago when I, cause I put this reminder in my phone to do this show and it popped up. Hey, by the way, in half an hour, you got to go save the world.
0: <laughs> and you know, like, I love this. I love this segment because it gives us an opportunity to talk about stuff that, Intersects with sports, politics, race, the triad, as it were. And yet, when I talk about William Wayne justice with many people, you can go in any direction. So knowing what we know about him and knowing what his legacy has become, I, what did you pick up from the state of Texas in particular from learning about this federal judge who said enough
1: uh, I mean, so I've I've kind of a lot of large takeaways from this. They're all kind of ethereal, though. So I'm excited to dig into less less big idea things and more into the nitty gritty of what specifically this is. Hmm. Uh, I do think that one of my biggest takeaways here is just what it means to what it means to align yourself, even at the expense of your own privilege. Uh, I think that that's kind of the The biggest takeaway from this story, what it means to actually put yourself, your career, your body in a place where you are an ally, which is something that we talk a lot about. But I don't think that we actually I don't think we actually talk enough about what it looks like in practice. And this story is a fantastic example of what it looks like in practice.
0: When I talk about this story. I'm always really clear about saying this is a federal judge. And I don't know that many people underscore that the way I underscore it. It's a lifetime appointment. And he got it in 68. right? And he got it at a time when you could quite literally fix the world. And he decided to in East Texas where he grew up which is another reason why I thought this was interesting he's doing this in his home like he grew up just down the road from Tyler Texas and ends up living in Tyler Texas and then refuses to leave like that was the part that I really want to flesh out and maybe it's going to be on me to try to to do a William Wayne Justice biography but then again There are lots of biographies about white dudes in the world, and I'm not sure that I want to give my time to that. That said, he's fascinating because he apparently kept all of his beliefs very much to himself for the better part of 30 years. And then as this stuff comes along, he has enough legal bearing as a federal judge to know that it ain't the decision that matters. It's the remedies. And I didn't know that, so I go looking at all these this, this big genre called remedies of what a judge can also tack on to the end of it, kind of like a writer clause in a contract, and I'm going, oh, wow, you really do have a lot of authority, because, like, yeah, this goes to appeal, it might get turned over, but in the meantime, we're doing this. And the idea that a federal judge would empower 16 people, 8 black, 8 white, to make real decisions in an educational environment is still bonkers to me, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring it to you and want to talk about it on the on the show. Is you're steeped in education. What does it mean to you that eight people basically come to some consensus and that becomes, for our purposes, law?
1: I think it's I think it, it's impressive. I mean, so I'm learning right now. I'm. I'm learning a bit about education law and how education law works. Uh, it's taught me two things. One is that I really like education law. And two is that, as I've said before, I never want to be a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, I, it's it's just, it's so, things that we think are very clear cut, it turns out in law are actually very, very, very complicated. Um, I mean, there, there are kind of myriads of examples of the ways in which this manifests. And so in education, you start getting into just very confusing questions about like, what students do and what their rights are under the First Amendment versus what their rights are. uh, as, As defined by the school, you get into that with teachers, you get into that with administration, you know, there's a lot of kind of like, where are the lines? How do we determine things? And most of that, I'm learning, most court cases are decided by court cases that are decided before them. It's, there's a lot of, well, this is how it's always been done, and so this is how we're going to do it now. And this case is the same as this other case because or it's not because. And so there's kind of this, this perpetual, uh, again, I'm speaking from a, you know, do not have a law degree, but my, my very limited experience has taught me that there's a lot of inertia in law. It's very hard to overcome what has already been determined in previous courts, or not, not previous courts, in previous cases. It's very hard to push back against precedent. And so to watch this decision made by Judge Justice, to watch him affect the lives of of lots and lots and lots of students and lots and lots and lots of educators and, and do it in a way that is is swift and straightforward and at personal expense. It just it's it's profound to me. It takes a lot to do this. It takes a lot to it takes a lot to be the, the person that says, no, actually I'm going to do what's right. And here's my reasons for it. Uh, not only in terms of just awareness, but also in terms of how precedent in law works. So I think that's where I'm really, uh, I'm just really impressed by the, the work that he did. He, it's impressive. It's impressive that he, he pushed back in the regard that he did.
0: Pushing back starts with a story I didn't put in, uh, The story I told about a former U.S. vet coming out of Vietnam, going to Tyler Community College, I I believe at the time, and he had long hair. So his professor said, you cannot take this test until you cut your hair, because that is part of our protocol here. To which this veteran said, yeah, okay, no. (laughs) And that case ends up in front of judge justice and judge justice says uh yeah so now i get to take apart everything i get to take apart this hair requirement racial segregation gender segregation gender identity and on down the list and that was his opening salvo so much so that he had more people writing in to say this long-haired hippie then people that knew this was a vet and I thought this was perfect and I'm going how much how much time do you have to put into thought to be able to ascertain what you can do like what you can do with that case because you know I'm also very clear about this being the 60s when he's appointed the late 60s right we got LBJ appointing him himself so people are savvy to what civil rights is and what constitutional law is but they're still very much not going through with it and one of the things i was talking with a friend of mine a historian his name's dr Derek e white He's at university of kentucky i gave to him that eight hundred thousand dollar figure that the texas education agency gave to the tyler school board and he says yes there was no integration unless you start actually threatening to take their money And Judge Justice got at that real quick. Like, it's part of that remedy with Tyler Community College. Hey, state funds? Okay, I can't take them, but you know what I can do? I can point the finger at TEA, which is in charge of the entire state of Texas, and say, you're on the hook for this. In which case, TEA had to go around the state of Texas when these cases popped up where they were named and be like, look, (laughs) we're going to take this money away from you. If you just don't do what the court order says and people would walk it out and say, it's not a court order. It's coming from this committee who was fingered by the court. And as soon as he was fingered or that committee's fingered by the court, they're in charge. And the- I'm thinking about how you could use that for evil as well. Right. And-, and we've seen some of that. But also. Big question for me. Why? Where does that end? You know, like I'm thinking about Oklahoma, for instance, where superintendent of Tulsa Public Schools, Deborah Gist, Dr. Deborah Gist, flat out called the governor of Oklahoma a bully. And I'm thinking, okay, is there a judge that could come in and do something with this? Probably not. But as you said, like, education law is all over the place and so many things go into it. But apparently if you have a guy like Justice who knows exactly where to put the scalpel You can do a lot of good very quickly, to which I ask, would you like to see a judge do a lot of good very quickly with a scalpel?
1: Well, I think that's what makes this particular story so interesting, because historically we see, of course, following the civil rights movement, many judges ruling that schools must be integrated. And we see buses traveling to and from different parts of town to integrate across the the different districts. Mm -hmm. That's, that is very common. Um, Or I should say it's very common in the South Because one of the ugly things that we don't talk about is that the North, a lot of States in the North have actually never properly integrated their school districts, but that is a, that's a different conversation. We can save that for a different day, looking at New York and Pennsylvania on that one. Uh, However, he doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't just say, okay, we're going to bus all of the kids across to the schools that are predominantly white. He says, okay, now also I'm going to continue to dip in when these cases get brought to me by these students at, because their rights are being interfered with, because they're not allowed to cheerlead, or they're not allowed to participate in the way that white students are. He continues to create legislation that strives for, for equity. That is uncommon from what I understand. Again, I'm not speaking from a law degree. So if someone is listening to this and you know has has other examples of stories, please bring them forth. I do not pretend in any capacity to be an expert on this. I do know that when you get into cases of students' rights versus what the school is allowed, it does get very, very murky and it gets very complicated. I mean there are cases that talk about, well, okay, are students allowed to de- do free speech in school? Can they can they speak out in ways that are are hateful? Well, no, but not because it's hateful, but because it interferes with the learning environment. Our, you know, and then we get into like in modern day with social media, are students allowed to make posts that are that interfere with uh, with their their sports? Um, their sports teams or their sportsmanship. Like, are they allowed to post angry things about their coaches when things don't go right? Or is that, you know, is that protected or does that violate school policy? Is it first amendment rights? Is it 14? You know, we get, it gets very, very, very complicated. So he's making a really huge decision here by ordering the creation of the biracial committee. He's making a huge decision here by appointing, uh, appointing rather mandating who on this committee needs to participate. Um, He's making a huge decision basically ruling in favor of the students. It's it's a interesting intersection where we're seeing law and school policy come head to head and in this case he is he is siding with he's siding against the school. That's a huge choice to make. Historically that's uh that's a huge that's a huge precedent. So I when I, as I'm reading this story the reason that I think it catches my attention in the way that it does is not only because of the the work that he has done, the what this does for the students in the school district, what this does for the cheerleading team, what this does for the sports teams, but this sets a precedent moving forward that now when other similar cases are brought up, when other students are alleging there's racism in my, my newly integrated school, other judges can look to this and say, oh, this case that got brought to me is like the case that got brought to you know this justice and use that as a as a way to further legislate equity. That's a huge deal. It's one that sends ripples out far beyond the year that this case ha- happened. I think that's a really really cool conversation to have.
0: And he didn't stop with schools, right? Because desegregating schools is obviously of of note and issue in 1970 thereabouts, right? We're we're getting to the place where forced busing is happening. But another case that I found, again, fascinated by this dude, is the called a, the Ruiz Prison Case. Uh, this is coming from the tspbtexas.gov website where I was just scooping around. According to histories, it arose in 1972 when a Texas prison inmate, David Ruiz, filed a civil rights, or excuse me, yes, filed a civil rights um I guess case because there seems to be a missing word alleging he was confined under unconstitutional conditions given inadequate medical care and subjected to unlawful solitary confinement. That you would actually go at prison, right, is also wild to me as an East Texas judge. Like this is traditionally conservative right wing hotbed and you got a justice Born in I believe 1920, who for the next 80 plus years decided, nah, I'm gonna be here for what the Constitution says. And and let's let's add in there, this man served overseas in World War II. You know, I think Southeast Asia for four years, and is a graduate of the University of Texas and its law school. So you cannot claim that the man wasn't brought up there. As a matter of fact, that's one of my favorite things about being from Tulsa is. Nobody can tell me shit. I went to TPS. I went to University of Tulsa. I got a degree from OU. <laughs> I live here. So when you come at me about you know outsiders and carpetbaggers, this, this ain't it. And for that man to do that, especially at the height that he had achieved with such privilege, is exactly what I want white folks to do. Like when white folks ask the question, what can I do? This man ought to be front and center or one of the folks that is front and center. Don't bring me no Lee Daniels the butler shit. Don't do it. Don't do it. You get cut. Okay? Don't bring me any patriarchy. Okay? Don't do it. You'll get cut. Bring me this dude who said, what's the law say? All right. So so y'all are going to quite literally march around my house with rebel flags. Fine. So y'all are going to ostracize me from the public. Matter of fact, Earl Campbell is who I'm telling that story around. Tyler, Texas gave Earl Campbell... A truck. uh, And I want to say in like 2004. So relatively recently. And it said RBC on the license plate. And nobody actually knows what that means. Like Earl Campbell said. Maybe it means running back Campbell. You don't really ask questions. When somebody's giving you something. The only person not to receive an invitation to the dinner. Where they were giving Earl Campbell this award. Was Judge Justice. (laughs) So they still held a grudge. Right. Like that's. That's what you're walking into. Now, you, you've you been very clear about, yo, man, he had something to lose. There's a difference here. I also think there's something worth saying in that he lost it, right? I think giving that just little bit of, of foundation to the story makes it a little bit cooler to me. Because, you know, like I, I've always said and many people believe, the most dangerous person in the world is the person with nothing to lose, All right, now show me somebody with something to lose that is willing to do something about it, and I will show you Tony Stark snapping his fingers to use a lighter um, example, right? And the idea that this dude walked around and on his headstone is written, Defender of the Constitution means the world to me, right? On the back of that headstone, he worked courageously to uphold constitutional freedoms and to ensure equal justice for all. And usually I look at that sort of a sentence and I'll be like, there's a lie in there somewhere. I can find it. But with him, at least from, from the research that I have done, he walked it like he talked it. And when he got a chance to do something about it, he did not get cozy. He did not get comfortable. He decided he was going to actually rule in favor of the law. Right.
1: I think, yeah, I think that the... The case that you brought up about uh, David Rees, I think that's a really important, you know, he, he's extending out his civil rights work beyond school. He's looking now at prison reform and prison system, which is inherently and deeply tied to racial justice, given the role of our prison systems, both in 1972 and, of course, today in 2021. So looking at that, but then looking at his, his ruling here about uh dropping confederate imagery imagery from the tyler school board and then the implications that that had for this justice the the stress that put him under the ways that people were treating him i mean he essentially whatever i feel like he gained in his his privileged position a lot of that was indeed taken from him because he became a target because of the work that he did uh, i think that i think that you're right he did he he lost a lot. He didn't lose everything, but there was a lot that he lost at great cost to him by doing the duty that he was appointed to do, which is as simple as upholding the law, but also as complicated as upholding the law and the Constitution. I like his his quote that you've included here. It's, it's a great way to take out my frustrations. You build up a lot of hostilities sitting on the bench all day. I think that really encapsulates... The spirit in which he was doing all this he's not out here as some crusader that wants recognition he's not out here as someone who has I don't know who's who's performatively doing it no he just he's a man that is tired of the crap he has the position to do something about it he's got the privilege of sitting on a bench where he can actually make rulings that have an impact and regardless of what he stands to lose or be threatened or whatever doesn't matter Still gonna do the
0: right thing. He also went at housing discrimination. If I needed to to layer even more on this, like this is awesome. Um, all right, so this is 1980. Right, involved 70 housing authorities in 36 East Texas counties. He named the plaintiffs right: Lucille Young, Virginia Wyatt, Helen Ruth Jackson, because names are important. And they applied for low income housing operated by the Clarksville and Pittsburgh Public Housing Authorities. The plaintiffs alleged that tenants were assigned on the basis of race, that black and white residents of the same complex were placed into segregated areas in 1980, and that sites for new construction had the effect of maintaining black housing in primarily black neighborhoods and white housing in primarily white neighborhoods. Justice, uh, July 1, 1982, order uh, had an order permitted that the action be maintained as a class action, right, because they were trying to separate this thing. Further, it severed litigation against housing and urban development HUD from the action against the Clarksville and Pittsburgh housing authorities. The latter action subsequently because they basically made them into separate cases but also kept class action aspects of it. And that ends up going for the plaintiff, in which case you get desegregated housing. But one, you had segregated housing in 1980. And two... You had a judge who was like, "Really? We're still doing this? Cool. Let me make sure that I can tackle this on this one, and let me to make sure I can tackle this issue on the other one." It was—it's as if he had been planning to do this all along, and was always just waiting on the right case to come along. Like that's—that's that's also important to me, because having a plan makes all the difference, right? And then you have a plan that you're basically able to execute for as long as you are alive. That's cool. Uh, also, just want throw in there, yes, Texas knows about this man, uh, William Wayne Justice Center for Public Interest in Law. He was honored uh, I, I don't, at his death at Daryl K. Royal Stadium, Texas Memorial Stadium, for a football game. But, I mean, obviously, I'm talking about it now with you because I don't think enough people know about what it takes, and that's what it was for me, about what it takes to actually get to a place like equality because my contention is that the biggest issue with race in America is that too many white folks still don't see black folks as equal to them and judge justice didn't have that bone and I ask all the time what's it going to take for white folks to just see a black or brown person a a an asian person as a person as opposed to something different than them and more than that something beneath them
1: yeah yeah i think i think that's a a really great way to surmise this because i'm thinking about uh As I'm delving more into education law, you know, some of the most important cases that have been decided in education, and honestly, some of the most important cases that have been decided in the history of the United States, send their way to the Supreme Court and the decision comes down with a five to four margin. So when we think about law, when we think about law in terms of justice, one of the things that I, I feel like I have gathered over the past couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years as I study this is the law is actually very gray, and therefore it is, it is much more about the ways in which you interpret it and the, the moral compass that you feel guides you through it that leads to the decisions that we see. And this man came in, and he made the law work for him in a way that pr- exclusively promoted equity. There are arguments that could be made on the other side of every single one of these cases that very well could have fallen within legality, that would have at least legality of the time that would have continued to promote racism and segregation and general harm to the the people that brought these suits and he he refused to participate in anything even close to that narrative he simply said nope i know it's right i know what the laws are and now how to make these two things sync up and that is that's impressive so yeah when you know as as a white people when we're asking, what is it that we can do and how do we help? Well, here it is. <laughs> right here. Here it is.
0: That man also is the is antithetical to you and I because he grew up only wanting to be a lawyer. And his daddy was a lawyer. And his daddy put him on the office stationery at like age seven. This is what he was going to do. You know, that's the other part that I find. Like in the way that people grow up believing they're going to be football players because their father was a football player or their mother was a basketball player. I'm going to be a basketball player. This man grew up thinking about the law and thinking about using the law for public good. Which, again, remarkable because most of us have a negative connotation of lawyers. They go along with bad stuff that happens in your life and they take advantage of you. Rightly or wrongly, that's the thought process. And yet, there's at least one cool-ass white dude that I get to point to. And I like being able to point to cool-ass white dudes. For instance, we talked about the Super Bowl last week. Tampa Bay Buccaneers won. What doesn't necessarily go as widely reported is they won with probably the most diverse coaching staff in the entire league. Black offensive coordinator, black defensive coordinator, two women on staff. I want to say three other black men on staff. For a dude named Bruce Arians, who's from your neck of the woods, right? He he's he's from uh, Philly, I believe. He coached at Temple for a very long time in like the 80s. He's in he's I think he's 69, 68, 69. Anyway, his mom also got to come down there. Like they they flew his mom down in a jet by herself, you know, so that they could do the quarantine and make sure it was safe and put her in the stadium in like a section by herself at 95, so she could watch her son coach in the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl, which is still one of the coolest things there anybody ever. Right? Your mom lived that long and got to see you do this thing with perhaps the most progressive staff, this side of the nineteen sixty nine Kansas City Chiefs or perhaps even the nineteen seventy four Pittsburgh Steelers. I found that to be really cool. And that also means that there are still people that can do it. There are some that will and there's some that won't justice Aryans you will what's it going to take for more people to
1: that is the question I'm sure that's the question we will continue to ask throughout this podcast
0: (laughs) well I mean you know like we're talking about it so that's that's the thing that's the thing we're talking about it Um, before I, I do let you go I want to tell you one of these stories that I have found in my research for this big Black History Month project that I'm doing for Fox, and I'm basically reading through this AFL book, and some of the stories about the American Football League and a startup are just wild to me. You know, like, there's this story of a fella whose name is, I think it's Ronnie Davison, Ben Davison, right? So Ben Davison played for the Oakland Raiders, and man went out, for football without actually knowing what football was, in high school, didn't know how to buckle his pants, ended up at East L.A. Junior College. But in his first game, he got clipped and responded by gouging the opposing player's eye, confirming his attraction to the sport. Eventually got a scholarship at the University of Washington, but lasted only three weeks in, with the New York Giants because he didn't know how to turn the switch off. There's another story of a dude named Dan Birdwell, with hands so big that you could drop a quarter through his wedding ring, period. Like, you could just drop a quarter through the middle of it. And he was kind of a dude that would ball up his fist and hit a defensive end in the face with a a fist to get him out of his way. He hit the helmet with his fist and knocked dudes out. And and this also was at a time when football was so violent— that some of the players had WWE finishers. You know, like Charlotte Flair has the figure eight, Ric Flair has the figure four, Fred Williamson had the hammer, right? Uh, Bill Goldberg has a spear, Roman Reigns has a spear, and Deacon Jones has a head slap. Would quite literally slap you upside your head, make your head ring so much, and then fly by you as a distraction. And then perhaps my favorite, Dick Night Train Lane, who does not sound like a defensive back, let alone a corner, but was exactly that. And he had what was called the Night Train Lane necktie, a move that was so violent and so illegal as a clothesline that they banned his move 50 years before they decided to ban helmet-to-helmet contact. (laughs) Like, what?! They're like, Or Fred Williams to play corner. And he said, look, I didn't know how to play corner. I got my butt kicked for two weeks because I didn't know how to backpedal. And Coach said I wasn't going to make the team. I haven't made a team. I've always made every team. So I went back out, and I decided I'm not going to let him get past five yards. I'm going to just knock him down. So he just kept knocking people to the ground, so much so that that became what you do in the NFL until illegal contact came around, I want to say, in the early aughts, and you couldn't touch a wide receiver for five yards because Fred Williamson would put his hands on you and then throw you to the ground, and that way he didn't have to cover you. (laughs) Like, what? What are we doing here? I love those stories because it also demonstrates just what some people are willing to do to win and to get it right. Now, take that same work ethic and put it into the stuff that actually matters. Uh, Mullins, parting shot before we get out of here.
1: Uh... I got nothing. I I think your story is hysterical, but I, I guess my only final thing would just be if you, if you're listening to this and if you are wondering how you can make a difference yourself, um, I would I would point you back to the stories we've told today to examine and then examine your own actions in light of them.
0: Head slap the shit out of racism.
1: Also that. <laughs> <laughs>